A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tools. Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Christopher Taylor. Christopher Taylor was a grand hetman of the Polish crown in the year 1619 and happened to be visiting the city of Rotterdam when Johann von Oldenbarnveldt was executed. As the axe fell and the execution was carried out, Christopher Taylor let out a few enthusiastic cheers. To fit in, of course. This is all not true. Christopher Taylor is a wonderful patron and a grand hetman of the crown, but he was not alive in 1619, as I'd wager most of you were not either. But if you would like me to lie about you and also get yourself some really lovely audio and merch goodies as well, then head on over to Patreon and, well, you know the rest. Happy New Year, history friends, and I hope you enjoy this latest episode, episode 26 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. I know it's been a while, it's been four weeks, in fact, since an episode of this series has come out, so if you're in need of a bit of a recap, what we did in the last episode was basically examine the Spanish-Dutch relationship and the years leading up to the expiration of the Twelve Years' Truce in 1621. We said that in this episode here, we'd examine how the Dutch got on during their experience of the truce. But we also already prefaced this by saying, basically in a TLDR, or TL didn't listen, I suppose you could say, during the truce, the Dutch did very well abroad with their piracy and attacking Spanish shipping, but not so well at home. While the Spanish did reasonably well at home, but not so well abroad because they were being attacked, these two contrasting experiences of the Twelve Years' Truce still led both parties to believe that going back to war with their old enemy was going to be worth it. And last time we looked at where the Twelve Years' Truce fit in in the context of the Thirty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War, the Spanish-Dutch War, or whatever else you want to call it, was a critical part of the Thirty Years' War, and it helps us to understand why Frederick's war against Ferdinand developed into a European war as well. It also forms an important part of Dutch and Spanish history, obviously enough, and it introduces us to some themes which were later to become paramount. The Dutch propensity for fanning out across the world and making supremely successful trade ventures were matched by the Dutch sense for piracy and the debilitating effect which these efforts had on the Spanish income it was bad enough for Spain that much of its native government and infrastructure left something to be desired, but that an enemy could so effectively damage its balance sheet and also jeopardise its relations with the likes of Portugal just seemed frightfully unfair. 
It also spoke volumes about the kind of war Spain was fighting with the Dutch. This wasn't really a Dutch revolt anymore. It was a conflict between two advanced powers, and a great deal was at stake. For Spain as much as the Dutch people, the sense that retreat was unacceptable and that only total victory would suffice was felt passionately, not just in the home governments, but among the peoples of each power. And in this episode, we look at the Dutch domestic situation in a bit more detail, and we examine why the Netherlands struggled so much with the conflicts that continued to rip through its society. It's a story of turmoil and troubling trends, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to the Dutch Republic in 1619. I die not as a traitor. These were the final words of Johan van Oldenbarnveld, the advocate of the States of Holland and the pensionary of Rotterdam shortly before he was beheaded. The high positions in Dutch civic government had not helped Oldenbarnveld, who for the past two decades had stood as one of the Republic's most important politicians. On the 3rd of May 1619, though, Olden Barnveld's execution was carried out. What series of events had led this once well-respected and very powerful Dutch politician to be beheaded? Well, he'd been accused of orchestrating a Catholic plot which would overthrow the country's Calvinist church. He'd also been accused of trying to hand the country to the King of Spain. These charges, fantastic though they may seem for a statesman who was among the most loyal and patriotic of his peers were sincerely accepted and believed in by the masses, which really was all that counted at the time. Maurice of Nassau, stadtholder of five of the seven Dutch provinces, certainly stood to gain from the removal of the region's most visible and renowned representatives. The Orangist party, of which Maurice of Nassau was the head, would be supreme by virtue of its ability to fill the power vacuum that Alden Barnveldt's hasty exit left behind. It also meant that the Calvinist church was empowered, and that anti-Catholic and anti-Spanish feelings soared just as the Twelve Years' Truce was coming to an end. That these developments worked in favour of Maurice, who was the military leader of the Dutch Republic, should be considered either highly fortunate or somewhat suspicious, depending on your political leanings. Certainly, Maurice had ridden the wave of religious anger and passion, and he hadn't attempted to ease the anger levelled against Catholics, or to ridicule the conspiracies which emerged from such fanaticism. Those Catholics that had remained in the Republic since the beginning of the Dutch Revolt had always found it difficult to reconcile their faith with the exacting demands of the government, which consistently viewed them with suspicion. Catholics were viewed in many places of the Dutch Republic as the last vestiges of Spanish authority, since the neighbouring Spanish Netherlands to the south made compulsory its adherence to Catholicism, and Protestants there could only be considered a negligible minority, thanks to the force of the Counter-Reformation there. Catholics could very easily be cast as Spanish spies. This was a trend which began as early as the 1570s, when William of Orange had originally promised religious freedom for all in Holland, but had been forced, following militant displays and unfortunate reprisals, to severely limit the freedoms of Catholics in the Netherlands. The founding stages of the Dutch Reformed Church only added to these tensions because even while this Reformed or Calvinist Church came close to being the state church of the Netherlands, akin to the 
Anglican, Lutheran or Catholic churches of England, Saxony or Austria respectively, the ruling regent class didn't force the population to join in any of the towns. Despite the fact that the reformed doctrine received the most financial support, with the state paying the wages of the Calvinist preachers, there seemed to be a level of reluctance within Dutch society to compel any sense of religious uniformity. Inevitably, as the historian Christine Coy wrote, the results of this unwillingness to enforce religious commonality, as was done elsewhere, in addition to the flirtations with tolerance in the Republic, created religious pluralism within Dutch society. Christine Coy wrote, Thanks to this vagueness about the public church's political status, which fell just short of the level of state church, and its limited demographic base of committed adherents, the reformed congregations occupied an anomalous position in the spiritual life of Holland cities. For the first time ever, the mayors and magistrates who ruled these municipalities were confronted by genuinely multi-confessional societies dwelling within their city gates. This in turn compelled them also for the first time to develop and implement ecclesiastical policies that allowed these differing confessional groups, Reformed, Lutheran, Mennonite and Catholic, to coexist in relative harmony and good order. The Calvinists demanded an exclusive, confessional, independent public church, but the urban authorities, especially those in Harlem and Leiden, were intended to treat them as simply one of several denominations under their jurisdiction, albeit a supremely privileged one. There seems to have been a measure of sensitivity among Calvinist communities regarding the position of the church in the country. Calvinist preachers of the Reformed Church were eager to reduce the influence of the other churches where possible, and most of their number wished for the regional assemblies in the different provinces to aid in their mission, without interfering too much in Calvinist business as they did so, of course. For sure, a de facto policy of toleration included tolerance of Catholics within the state, for the sake of ensuring all would live in harmony and contribute to the overall good of the Republic. Catholics were not, as we have seen, universally liked, trusted or tolerated within the Republic, and Christine Coy, in her article on Catholicism in the Dutch Republic during this period, elaborates further, writing, For Dutch Roman Catholics, the question was a particularly sensitive one, because the Calvinists could never regard them as just another denomination. Reformed preachers and elders could view secret conventicles of Mennonites and Lutherans with relative equanimity, generally perceiving them more as confessional competitors than as doctrinal antagonists. But the Roman Catholic threat was almost an organic one, imperiling the health of the common body of Christians. Catholics were, as one Calvinist widow put it, members of the devil who waged perpetual war on every faithful member of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church had to be combated because it was the false church. Considering the open, tolerant and secular reputation of the Dutch today, such revulsion and burning anger over religious difference can appear absurd. Surely, considering modern Dutch society, the Dutch people must have been historically less passionate or less exacting regarding religious differences than their neighbours? And you listeners would not be alone in expecting higher standards of toleration from the Dutch. Even during the latter half of the 17th century, English settlers in New Amsterdam, before it became New York, expressed surprise at the Dutch unwillingness to grant religious toleration to the incoming Quakers. 
The resident English settlers, it seemed, expected the Dutch to permit religious freedoms in its New World colonies, just as the Dutch had permitted religious toleration in Europe. The Dutch did contribute something tangible to the religious toleration inbuilt in the American state while they held their New Netherland colony, but the legacy is greatly complicated by the different anecdotes of harsh, theocratic Dutch colonial governors, and of more relevance to our narrative, the glaring example of Dutch religious intolerance in their European republic. The renowned Dutch historian Peter Gale addresses this strange and somewhat alien state of affairs, writing, The religious disputes which dominate the history of the Dutch Republic during the Twelve Years' Truce are foreign to the present-day reader. His first reaction is one of dismay at this squandering of so much passion on such incomprehensible issues. When he has browsed a little in the musty libraries of polemics bequeathed by legions of theologians and divines, he is at a loss to choose between astonishment and disgust at the virulence with which these Christians fell upon each other, and at the dry-as-dust argumentations cramful of quibblings and hair-splittings with which they seek to approach the eternal verities. This, of course, means that we of the present find its theological terminology hopelessly antiquated. The religious dispute which had rocked the Dutch Republic began as early as 1610 and was initially unconcerned with Catholicism and moved more by fierce debate within Calvinist theology. The competing religious camps, their beliefs and the emotions which were evoked, need not detain us too much, especially since other historians have spent a great deal of time focusing on them already. One such historian, Jasper van der Steen, summarised the core of the religious disagreement conveniently for us, writing Around 1610, a religious quarrel broke out about the reformed doctrine of double predestination between two professors of theology in Leiden, Jacobus Arminius and Franciscus Gomarus. The disagreement between the two men was ostensibly a matter for academics only, but in fact it almost dragged the Dutch state into civil war. The question of how this academic debate about religious doctrine led to Johann von Oldenbarnveld's death in 1619 is answered by the pace with which this issue of doctrine became politicised. The disagreement within the Calvinist Reformed Church and the identification by preachers with one side or the other led to the creation of two camps named after the figures who led the debate, Arminians and Gomorists. Arminians were in the minority, and so they issued a remonstrance to the States of Holland in January 1610, requesting protection for their sect. Johann Olden Barnveldt, who was then at the height of his powers, took their side for the sake of the greater harmony of the state, let the Arminians say what they wanted if it made them happy and reduced the likelihood of conflict. Unfortunately for Johann von Olden Barnveldt, the Gomorists disagreed with this premise of tolerance because it divided the Reformed Church and it upset their orthodox sensibilities. And then we see the real divisions, as Maurice of Nassau, the Stadtholder of Holland, took the side of the Gomorists, and the stage was effectively set. Yet there was, at this point, no sign that any kind of terrible consequences would be the result of whatever confrontation might have followed. In 1619, 
Olden Barnveld even attempted to paper over the cracks which were emerging by co-opting the pensionary of Rotterdam, a man you might have heard of called Hugo Grotius, to pen the resolution for the peace of the churches. This was adopted by the states of Holland the following year, and with this stroke, the leading political figure in the Netherlands seemed to give his stamp of approval to the differences of opinion within the Republic. It was imperative for the civic and political unity of the Republic that religious questions not divide the people, particularly since the war against the Spanish enemy had only been put on hold and wasn't definitively over at this point. Yet, for Olden Barnveld, his role in bringing this peace about had effectively tarnished his reputation. In spite of the monumental success abroad that the Twelve Years' Truce represented for the Dutch, those that were unaware of the realities of the conflict believed, or had been led to believe, that their country had been manipulated into making peace with the enemy at the wrong time. You might remember that Maurice of Nassau had initially been vocal in his opposition to the truce, but he had eventually accepted the will of the majority in this regard. As the historian Karl Bangs, in his article looking at Dutch theology, trade and war around this period, wrote... Maurice opposed the truce on personal and military grounds, although he was happy enough to have the support of the Calvinists, even though their theology probably confused him. The truce threatened his military successes, and military success was the path by which he sought to achieve political sovereignty. Opposition to the truce became a passion with him. His opposition had not been forgotten by those citizens who were also against the truce, and who increasingly identified with the Gomorist sect, and who whispered at the same time that Olden Barnveldt, far from acting in the country's interests in 1609, when the truce was arranged, had in fact acted in secret consultation with Spain. The ruling regents were guilty of no such crime, obviously, and the truce had been welcomed eagerly in many sections of the countryside in 1609, where war had exhausted and impoverished enterprise and trade. It was relatively easy nearly a decade later to forget about all this, to forget the war's privations and to turn against those responsible for the current peace. Olden Barnveldt, a sympathiser of Arminius, or at the very least a sympathiser of tolerance, and his regent peers were transformed by some into traitors of the state, and in a short time the narrative became one far removed from the academic confessional debate. It was now superimposed, onto the more important questions of foreign policy, of war with Spain, and of the historical memory of what the Dutch had so far accomplished. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. By 1617, attitudes had hardened still further. Arminians were now known as remonstrants, thanks to their presentation of the remonstrance to the states of Holland in early 1610, while the Gomerists were now known as the counter-remonstrants. The abundance of titles and names only served to widen the chasm between both sides, and each became identified, rightly or wrongly, with distinct political views in addition to their religious outlook. Through the development of such assumptions, which grew from concerns into fears, Dutch society began to divide against itself, when Alden Barnveld called Maurice of Nassau to The Hague in a bid to quell dissent and restore order, Maurice of Nassau refused, reasoning that the princely guard which Alden Barnveld requested he use was meant only for his personal protection. We're going to talk about the worsening religious situation in the Dutch Republic in a moment, but before we do that, I wanted to let you know or remind you if this sounds familiar that When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. And if you would like to support us in return for a small amount of money a month or a year, if you're one of those annual paying patrons, you can get an hour of extra content a month and a whole load of other privileges too. Currently, we're examining the history of Poland in the 18th century in a series called Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which is exclusive for $5 patrons and above. It comes out every other week. In other words, every week that this... 30 Years War series doesn't come out, an episode of Poland comes out instead. So if you're the kind of person that likes weekly installations of podcast content, Patreon might be for you. If, on the other hand, you're not that interested in Poland is not yet lost, that is cool, but you should know that there's some other stuff there in the back catalogue of $5 patrons, such as our examination of the Suez Crisis, which, considering how things are going with Brexit these days, you might be interested to see Another blunder that Britain stumbled into in 1956. Patreon is by far the best way to financially support this show. And thanks to your guys' very generous financial support in the past, I've basically been able to do this PhD. And if you're wondering how that's going, you'll be hearing an update on that in the future. Thank you so much for listening to this show and for making 2020 such a great place to be. I really can't get over how generous you guys are. And really, even if you don't go on Patreon, just know that the fact that you're listening to this and taking time out of your lives to hear me ramble about the Dutch in the early 17th century, just know that I really appreciate that. Alright, let's continue our story. This mention of Alden Barnveldt calling Maurice of Nassau to The Hague leads us to examine this very important Dutch city at the time. The Hague was a majority Arminian city, believe it or not, but that had not prevented the Gomerists from demanding extensive rights, the same rights they refused to Arminians in the other towns and cities of the Republic. 
in mid-July 1617, when Maurice of Nassau openly attended a Gomorist service, Alden Barnvelt got the message, and through his political clout, he passed the Sharp Resolution, which empowered civic leaders to employ mercenaries who would enforce the official policy of toleration that had itself been mandated in the ruling passed by the states of Holland in 1614. Alden Barnvelt had not helped his self-image by supporting the French policies levelled against the Huguenots, an act which, while taken in the interests of Dutch political strategy, did the advocate no favours with the mob. It became relatively easy because of this to cast Alden Barnvelt as the pro-Spanish, pro-Catholic schemer who plotted with his circle to overthrow the sovereign republic and install a Spanish regent. Maurice, troublingly enough for Alden Barnvelt, didn't strive to defend his colleague in spite of their cooperation in the past. Perhaps the stadtholder, Maurice, had sensed that there was political capital to be made in the conflict to come. The original cause of this disorder is easily discovered to be Arminianism. The effects will be faction in the state and schism within the church. These were the words of Sir Dudley Carleton, the English ambassador in The Hague at the time. Carleton was passionately in the Gomorist or counter-remonstrance camp, in case it wasn't obvious, and this was demonstrated further in his correspondence home to London. Carleton added, The factions begin to divide themselves betwixt His Excellency and Monsieur Barnvelt as heads who join to this present difference their ancient quarrels. This observation proved to be astute, because Alden Barnvelt would live and die not on the decisions made regarding religious policy, per se, but because of the inherent conflict and tension within the Dutch Republic, which were founded upon the competitions between the regents and their stadtholder, and more recently, on the question of the truce. Maurice of Nassau disagreed with Alden Barnvelt on many aspects of Dutch foreign policy, and this disagreement trickled down into the supporters of both camps, and fueled the assumptions which both camps held of the other. The next step in the conflict was to present a certain interpretation of history. To the counter-remonstrants, the remonstrants or the Arminians, were corrupting the version of Calvinism which all Dutchmen had fought for during the revolt against Spain. By corrupting this creed, they were corrupting the memory of the conflict, and manipulating it for their own ends. If the version of Calvinism, which had been accepted originally, was now lost, then so too would the invaluable lessons and traditions of the revolt, and they would be replaced by what? The Gomorists saw in the Arminian Creed the intrusion of heretical ideas such as salvation by works and the reduction of God's sovereign will in their lives. These heresies appeared suspiciously like the doctrines of Catholic teaching, especially to those Orthodox Calvinists who were trying to extirpate that creed from the entirety of the Republic. Perhaps in Arminianism, Catholicism would creep back into the country through this safe avenue, and from there, Spanish Habsburg influence and control would follow. By making such views about their doctrinal opponents public, the Gomorists may not have expected much of a response, but they got one. Since Alden Barnvelt was known to empathise with the Arminians, even if he didn't profess his whole-scale belief in their tenets, the advocate was able to make use of his influence to begin a great pamphlet war that was to be levelled against the Gomorists. In short, the Arminians were trying to secularise the Dutch Republic as a way of legitimising their movement, and to undermine what they viewed as the extremism of their Calvinist countrymen, 
who they still considered their brothers in Christ. William of Orange, the father of the nation, had rallied against such extremism after all. And he had not launched his revolt against Spain for religious reasons alone. Instead, the Arminians claimed, the first Prince of Orange had fought Spain for political and national reasons. The war had not been launched for Calvinism, but so that the Dutch would be free. These ideas were far too scandalous to go unanswered by the Gomorists. But now that the Arminians had made use of his father's name for their pamphlets, Maurice of Nassau had no issue with the Gomorists using William of Orange for their purposes as well. An anonymous pamphlet disputed the Arminian findings and noted that the furtherance of Calvinism had been central to the prince's motives for rebelling against Spain, adding, If he, the author of the previous Arminian pamphlet, were to research the many old writings, commissions and instructions by the Prince of Orange in the years 1567 to 1572, and subsequent years until he was killed so cruelly and murderously, he would find this to have been his chief aim, above all to further the honour and service of God, to protect the oppressed Christians and maintain the privileges and liberties of these lands. As if the debates could not contain any more exaggeration or dubious comparisons, the temperature was greatly increased by the publication of a pamphlet which compared Olden Barnveld to the Duke of Alva, the infamous figure of Dutch history who had been sent to the Netherlands to crush the revolt in its early phase, and who had executed many thousands of Dutch citizens in his quest. The Iron Duke, as he was known, still evoked passionate reactions from those citizens who heard his name, and while enforcing the comparisons between Alva and Alden Barnveldt may appear shrill and ridiculous to us, propaganda and rumour greatly abetted the exercise. In 1618, Gomerist print, image of the old and new time, Alden Barnveldt is depicted as seated, while a figure to his left whispers what is assumed to be unsound advice in his ear. The print didn't just depict Alden Barnveldt, though. It also depicted two individuals looking at this print, and there was a caption below them to indicate what they were saying. Hang on, what do I see there? One of the observers asked. Hey mate, look at it, how well it is cut, the other replied. Hey, let us have a look. Is it not Barnveld? One asked. The illustrious president, full of power and great force. Tis a president, all right, his friend replies, but he is named the Duke of Alba. In this particular print, there was a way to actually swap the head of Olden Barnveldt for that of the Duke of Alva by flipping over the top of the image. This inventive design proved highly effective at reinforcing the message, improbable though it might sound to us, that the Gomorists were creating. The latter part of the aforementioned print traced the dialogue between the two individuals, who debated for a few sentences on the similarities between Olden Barnveldt and the Duke of Alva, before a third figure entered into the discussion and assured both of his friends that, in fact, there was little difference between the Iron Duke and Olden Barnveld after all. The implications of propaganda tracts like these were as explosive as they were deadly for Olden Barnveld and his allies. The outcome of this conflict led to the opening scene of this episode, but the implications of it didn't end with Olden Barnveld's death in May 1619 as he sought in vain to protest his innocence in the face of so many ludicrous charges. 
Maurice of Nassau, the individual who had done much to rouse the population against Oldenbarnveldt, must have known that the advocate of Holland was not the second coming of the Duke of Alva. Indeed, he must have also known that Oldenbarnveldt had by no means been the sole regent in favour of the Twelve Years' Truce, and that the Republic, while it unravelled at home, had made great progress abroad, largely at Spain's expense, during the truce. The reality of the situation and the implications of his decision to side determinately against the civic leader of the Republic placed Maurice in an unprecedented position of power and influence and added a great deal of credit to his already impressive reputation, for he was the man who had rooted out the traitor and who brought the heresy to an end, and now he would be the figure to lead the Dutch people to victory against Spain once more. The reformed Calvinist church was greatly empowered and, in some senses at least, vindicated by its pursuit of the struggle against Arminians, who were unilaterally outlawed and expelled from the country in the aftermath of this violence. Thereafter, the reformed church made great efforts at installing its authority in every facet of Dutch life, this time with only limited success. Peter Gale wrote that a spiritual war was declared, on all ancient folk customs which seemed to perpetuate a popish love of tradition, or which gave expression to an unchristian enjoyment of life, and in these acts the public were urged to take part. However, as Gale notes, thankfully, fundamentalism of this kind was not allowed to triumph, because even as the Dutch had largely accepted the incompatibility of the Arminian creed with the Calvinist doctrine, and even while Alden Barnveld had been disposed of with suspicious ease, the church would never be able to usurp those activities or enterprises for which the Dutch were known. Theocracy did not and could not replace commercialism, although a puritanical strain of Calvinism did put down roots in the countryside and within smaller towns, while the more cosmopolitan cities remained immune to such penetration. In the context of the Eighty Years' War with Spain, the narrowing of the religious field of vision and the encounter with the Arminian heresy made the Dutch people more, rather than less likely, to oppose Catholicism in all of its forms. This meant that any future union with the southern Spanish Netherlands, if it came, would be fraught with religious dissension and conflict, a fact which Madrid was all too willing to play up. The historian Kimberly J. Hackett, in her article examining the English reaction to Alden Barnveld's execution, concluded that the language of Dutch patriotism, invoked to censor Alden Barnveldt's supposed actions against the state, was the same as that employed to rail against the truce in 1609, and later to call for the renewal of war in 1621. In foreign capitals, the reaction to Alden Barnveldt's fall varied. King James had instructed his ambassadors to fall in line with the majority view, a line which Ambassador Sir Dudley Carleton adhered to willingly, but the French were less confident. Louis XIII's ministers mostly evacuated The Hague during the worst of the violence, and they did so with feelings of profound shock and distaste. Alden Barnveld had been a reliable and stable civilian leader, and French relations with the Republic, while uneasy so long as the Huguenots chafed under the Catholic French king, were mostly good. Any sense of foreboding or the fear that fundamentalism would now be given free reign in the country at the expense of French interests was soon quashed, though. One of the guiding features of the demonstrations against Alden Barnveldt was the anti-Spanish quality of those demonstrations, and this was a feature which 
The French ministers, thinking ahead to the inevitable conflict with Madrid, certainly could value. Indeed, with Maurice of Nassau now greatly empowered, it seemed inevitable that the Dutch and Spanish wouldn't renew the Twelve Years' Truce before it expired in April 1621, as some in France had feared they would. Instead, the Dutch regent government, now populated with personnel selected and personally approved by Maurice, was virtually guaranteed to put an end to the truce with a resumption of the war. Perhaps Maurice believed that the end of peace would give him the ultimate opportunity to cement his legacy in the Republic and further strengthen his House of Orange at the expense of civilians like Alden Barnveld, who might appear in the future. A successful attack against the major pressure points of the Spanish Netherlands would net Maurice glory and renown and would enable him to reach new heights of power as the commander of the Netherlands forces, its captain general and stadtholder. As it transpired, though, the transition from peace to war was not destined to be smooth for the Dutch. In the next episode, we'll examine this transition and assess the Dutch and Spanish reasons for ending the truce, their aims for the renewed war, and how the Spanish managed to gain the upper hand to the detriment of Maurice and to the great anxiety of the Dutch people. I'll see you for that episode in two weeks' time, history friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 26 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.